All topics covered here are for conversational purposes only and do not constitute financial advice. Please contact Mulcain Co. to receive advice on all matters from one of our professionals. Welcome everybody to the FS360 podcast. We're up to episode six. Uh, you are joined here today by co-hosts Gavin Nash and Chris Mulcahy. Morning, Chris. G'day, Gav. How are you going? Not too bad. Not too bad, mate. We're mm. uh, we're actually recording on a Friday this week. Yes, things are getting a little bit busy in yes, the, uh, yes, in the no, trenches at Mulcahy. Has been a very hectic week with everything going on, but um, yeah, another week's gone by pretty quickly. So, but it's all going well. So we're all surviving, which is the main thing. So we're a little bit of a day late on the podcast, but that's okay. We're still going at one a week, which is um, exceptional compared to the na- national average, I've heard. So well done to us. That's a little pat on the back for us. Yeah, good work, Av. You um, kept, us, kept us all under control and scheduled. Yes. No, it's been good. Um, well, we really have. We, we gave it to Mark Cunningham there a few weeks ago saying that he was the celebrity guest, but we really do have the celebrity guest in today. We're welcoming our Director of Legal, Brad Matthews. Yeah, Welcome, thanks, Brad. guys. No, I... I didn't realise there'd been previous guests to me, actually. I would have presumed that I was the first guest you'd yes. like to add on. Yeah, sorry, I did tell Brad that he was number one. Oh, right, yeah. so he hasn't listened to any no, podcasts no, yet. obviously. <laughs> well, I haven't. No, that's completely honest. I haven't listened to any of them yet. So I have said one, that I did, but no, I haven't. You're not one of the 15 listeners we've had so far. No, no, no. But um, if this goes well, I might go back and revisit the other ones. But um, look, I assume you've got all the uh, technical hitches all sorted out now, so yeah. you can get onto the proper guests. Well, we wanted to make sure everything was... Perfectly running yeah. smoothly yep. before Brad was in, interrupted from his important work that he does here. Yeah, no, exactly. No, look, we're very privileged. There's so no doubt about it. Brad's in later on in the episode. Brad's going to talk to us about some legal uh, things that have happened lately uh, to do with COVID nineteen, but also just business and individuals in general. Um, but we're going to start today's episode off with Chris, and he's going to give us a bit of an update with the coronavirus stimulus packages in the financial world. Yep, thanks, Gav. Yeah, just another update. And look, there's been a few more changes with the JobKeeper. It just seems to be, uh, you know, constantly changing. So when we think we've got our head around how it's all going to play out and so forth, uh, another announcement by the government or tax office, which is, I suppose, from their point of view, it's been a very big undertaking. So you can sort of understand that they're, I shouldn't say making it up as they go, but they're putting in the systems and processes to enable it to actually work as they go so which has been a bit of a frustration for some businesses because they sort of i know you know they're they're ringing up their accountant and they're trying to find out but for a lot of the time we haven't known all the detail until kind of now yeah yeah which is right so i guess initially you know the job keeper program it's a 130 billion dollar program so you know it's it's uh, massive so i guess they've got to put a few checks and balances in there but we went through a registration process then we enrolled and now we're applying so um, as of this week it's been very busy and we're actually starting to see businesses receive the job keeper payment all right so payments are hitting bank yep, accounts this yep. week. so payments are hitting bank accounts so which is on track because they always said first week in may didn't they yeah that's right so today's a very good. important day just to get for those that haven't actually completed that application process yet but today was that date where you had to have the wages paid for that first fortnight beginning on the 30th of march so to claim it through for that first fortnight and then that second fortnight as well. So um, the eligible employees need to have received that $3,000. So the tax office did give employers a bit more time to, in some instances, to find the cash to actually pay them. And today's the day that needs to be paid. And then in theory, that'll be reimbursed through the JobKeeper program. For the coming months. That's the idea, yep, isn't it? Yep, that's yep. right. So I think we touched on it last week. With uh, the eligibility criteria, there's been some businesses thinking that their turnover had to decrease due to coronavirus. Now, 
if it decreased due to some other uh, implication, they can still claim the JobKeeper. So there's been a few instances where uh, due to other circumstances such as, uh, you know, the business structure has changed or, um, you know, whether it's due to fire, things like that. Um, turnover fire, yep. Yep, yep. So turnover's been, been uh, reduced. So businesses can actually enrol and claim it on, on those bases. So that's a very important thing in the... Um, ATO did also come out with some alternative tests. So, like, we had a situation where business turnover has actually grown compared to the same period last year, but it's only due to the fact that they bought a business. So when you actually break it down, their turnover has actually dropped back. It's only the inclusion of that extra business or the business that they purchased that their turnover has actually gone up. But when we actually go backwards and compare it to what they, you know, like for like... So there are some special cases that they're willing to listen to. It's not just Definitely. A black yep. and white, you know, 30% reduction, that's it. It's no, 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 that's that, right. So there's a bit of commentary on it. Yeah, that's yep, that's right. So the seven tests that they've actually brought out, which makes it a bit clearer, but yeah, within all that detail, it can be a little bit confusing to work out. But I think if you think you're not eligible, it's just worthwhile just going through the process to, to, to determine um, what the outcome might be. A few other things that happened... Um, bit more uh, clarification in relation to 16 and 17-year-olds claiming the JobKeeper. So um, now they've got to be financially independent and they've, they can't be in full-time study. So I think there are a few uh, younger people that were just working casually, might have been picking up a small amount of money that all of a sudden thought they were going to get this massive pay rise. So... Yeah, there is a bit more clarity around that. And it seemed a bit that one that particular bit seemed a bit fishy from the start. I yeah, it did. It <laughs> did. Sort of how that you know we've got to be able to afford to do this job, keeper, don't we? Yeah, that's right. So a um, few other things, state based ones, a few changes there. Uh, Queensland payroll tax exemption on job keeper um, and the Victorian um, grant that ten thousand dollar grant that's been extended as well. So. A few changes there. Just a quick update. Uh, yeah, the banks, there's a few headlines that have coming out this week. A bit more detail that we're starting to understand with how things are actually playing out. So the banks have loaned deferrals up to $160 billion now. So effectively people have rang up the bank and said, look, I want to turn off making loan repayments. Um, so the bank are actually, I guess, carrying an extra $160 billion of debt because of the loan repayments not being made. Which is quite significant. Is that is that an additional one hundred and sixty billion dollars worth of um, like lack of interest that they've received and, and repayments that they've, they've received? Yeah, yep, that's right. So it'd be interesting because I suppose in a roundabout it way, it means that um, yeah, look, they've got less money to probably lend out. And I think we're seeing that through our um, lending guys that you know the banks are taking a bit more time. Um, they're probably a bit concerned about that li- that liquidity aspect of it, but. I guess the bank are going to get it back eventually, aren't they? Mm. So it's really yeah, just... It's a deferral. It's not yeah, a, it's not a yep, waiver. Yep, that's right. And the right. idea is interest is still accrued in that time, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. Yep, it's still mounting. So even though you're not paying your repayments, there's still interest sort of mounting That's right. There. Yep. So, so think, the debt is increasing. I think Neil McCann was saying a few episodes ago from Loans of Finance here that if, if you were to pause your, your home loan or, or whatever to maybe see whether you can still make your interest repayments, just so you don't fall too far behind. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And just with the early access to super, I think uh, there's been a payout of $10.2 billion and $1.2 million That's people. the $10,000. Yeah, um, yep. 
ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand or ten thousand each, each side of the financial year. Which really, realistically, that those figures there could double because we're talking about ten thousand before June thirty and ten thousand after July one. Yeah, that's right. So no, look, it is. You know, we're starting to see. You know, there were a lot of. Um, I guess what the expectations were going to be and what the how these numbers would play out, but we're actually starting to see a bit more data now, so which is interesting. But the job keep is the big one. Like I think that's going to be a saviour for a lot of businesses. And there's some businesses that are sort of thinking, well, look, I don't, I haven't really been affected by coronavirus yet, or you know, it's sort of business as usual. Mm-hmm. And I guess what we're saying is, look. You may not be affected now, but who knows what's going to happen down the track. Yeah. So really we should look at this very closely and determine if you are eligible and then maybe try and put some money aside because in six, 12 months' time, two years' time, who knows what's, what, what the situation's going to be. But we can probably almost guarantee that um, the government won't be handing out money then. So I think... Most if businesses if, work on a, you know, a deferred sort of income basis, don't they? You know, they're issuing invoices now which may be paid in you know, 30 days, 60 days' time. Um, we're only sort of six or seven weeks, I guess, into this lockdown period. You know, I think a lot of businesses are going to be feeling the effect now when they thought previously they, 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 were, they were flying. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. But, but they're really collecting money that had come from January, February work and, and um, that's right. hadn't foreseen what's going to be the, the uh, cash flow effect May, June, July. Yep. No, there will certainly be that lag, lag effect. And... Talking to a few businesses that have got back into operation, there's um, a couple of hairdressers that have got back into it sort of gradually. Um, Even some food outlets that initially kind of shut completely, they said, "Oh no, look, we're a, we're a, you know, we might be a pub with a with, with yeah. TAB or gaming." I know we're job, job keepers were huge sudden, for that. Yeah. All of a sudden, they're back opening and doing takeaway, and yeah, they wouldn't so, qualify. They just don't qualify for the job keeper, do they, Chris? Unless they actually return people to work or you know, keep paying people. So I think a lot of times when people had stood down, staff thinking, well, this is going to take one, three, six months, we'll stand them down. All of a sudden they were nearly forced to reconsider re-employing them and if you're going to re-employ them, do something um, by association um, just be, to yeah, qualify for the job keeper. Yeah, change your, your offering, you know. So yeah, exactly. Ch- yeah. Turn in some takeaway food instead of sit in or whatever. Yeah, because the reality was if they weren't getting job keeper, a fair percentage of those guys will be on unemployment benefits anyway. So... Yeah which is the job seeker. So, yeah, so I think it was one of those things where the government are trying to keep the employer and the employee um, connected because history has shown with these types of downturns, if someone loses their job, it can take up to two years for that person to get a job again. Right. So it was very important to get the economy going because that's how we're going to repay the debt. We've got to grow the economy. It's not all about increasing taxes and probably cutting costs here and there, it's all about trying to get that economy to grow. And I suppose in the first instance, they've really just got to get people back working. And talking to these few businesses, I guess once we can sort of see that um, the tourism, the accommodation sort of starts kicking into gear, I think that's when we're going to sort of see how quickly the economy can recover. Well, it was interesting to see during the week that um, about Australia and New Zealand opening up their borders to each other, which, you know... Who knows that that could be a really good thing to you know get air travel back going again, maybe interstate and then into New well, Zealand and back to Australia. Stat I heard the other day that as many New Zealanders come to Australia as Australians go to New Zealand in travel, a lot of New Zealanders travel to the, apparently travelling in and out of Queensland yeah, right. for holidays, etc. But I would have thought there was a, a disparity. I would have thought a lot more Australians just because of the population would be going that way rather than back. But 
yeah, obviously there's a, there's a real economic benefit to, you know, even something as small as that. And I think we're, we're two countries that are very isolated, you know, by, um, by the sea. We're, we're both islands. And I think that would be a really safe and a good way to go for the next few months is to open up the borders, open up air travel, let people get out of home if the restrictions get wound back a little bit and, you know, get people travelling and spending money again. Yeah, that's right. Because I think the Treasury came out this week and said it's costing $4 billion a week yeah, to sort of keep huge things as they are now. So I guess, yeah, the sooner they can do this the better. And I think uh, Safe Work Australia came out with new work health and safety guidelines. So that's something that I guess as we prepare to reopen the economy and, and uh, reopen businesses, there'll be a lot of guidelines around that. I think it's just a matter of keeping everyone safe but making sure that we're not in some massive recession debt uh, situation that, you know... So it's a real... I mean, I'm... Who'd be a politician, you know, because you're trying to weigh up whether people are going to die from a, a coronavirus right through to are we going to have an economy at the end of the day to support it? Yeah, that's right. You know? so that's right. So it's, it's definitely – and look, National Cabinet are meeting as we speak basically. So yeah. there there's, yep. could be some windbacks getting announced um, today and maybe through to Monday by the States. So let's just see what happens out of all that. So today we've got our special guest in the studio is Brad Matthews from Legal here at Mulcahy Co. So – um, Brad, can I ask you a couple of questions just to kick things off? What it, can you give us a quick overview of what legal services you supply to the clients here at Mulcahy Co? A good question, Gav. We, um, we're a multi-service legal firm. So one of the important things I think to remember is that uh, legal, accounting, financial planning, lending, marketing, we're all separate companies. So we're all standalone companies. Have to stand on their own two feet uh, with their own registrations, with their own trust accounts, etc. So legal is its own company. Um, because of that, we offer uh, various services. We started off, um, I did a lot of property work, conveyancing, property development type law um, prior to coming here. Um, and that's probably still our main area if, um, in terms of the amount of work we do. So conveyancing, property law, property development, helping clients out with subdivisions, helping clients out with um, tax mat- matters relating to properties, purchases, sales, um, building matters, um, you know, anything re- relating to real property, to real estate um, probably half our staff are engaged in that particular area. We've done a lot of work in wills and probate um, since we started. The relationship we have here with the other divisions supplies uh, a lot of clients across the board who are needing wills, who are needing estate planning and succession planning. Kind of part of the FS360 plan. Yeah, Very much. That was a bit, a bit of a segue, uh, <laughs> pro segue there into the FS360. Uh, and... Um, with what Morrow McKenzie uh, business a few years ago, Mike Morrow, um, Bridget, Jane all came on board here, um, integrated their clients with ours. But Michael has a long experience in probates at part four, so estate claims, etc. Um, and that's been a really, uh, a really growing area for us because uh, people keep dying, keep needing assistance in in, that, in the estate planning. And that, that works really well, that estate planning and succession planning works really well with the other divisions. It's a really collaborative approach that I don't think anyone can get anywhere else, uh, you know, not having all those services under one roof. Uh, and the third, third area we, we deliver a lot of services in is, is around business clients, so business law, uh, leases, succession agreements in business, buy-sell agreements, shareholder agreements, unit holder agreements, structure advice when people are starting out business, assistance with contracts, so large-scale business contracts, building contracts, supply uh, contracts, those types of things. So anything relating to the business, how it's run and, and making sure that, you know, you get paid, et cetera, is all done through that. 
Um, we don't uh, specialise in criminal law. We don't specialise in family law. We tend to refer those two matters out. But no divorcees, divorces. No, we try. We we try and try and not because so many of our clients across the business as a whole, you know, as a couple would have been clients. It's unfair for us, of course, to act for one party and not the other. Um, and we certainly wouldn't want to be turning any clients away and favouring one over the other, especially especially with the relationship we have with other divisions and the fact that they may still continue to be acting for both for both parties in a, in a relationship. So we do t- tend to avoid that uh, purely for that conflict of interest type thing. We, we'd rather have clients for life rather than, you know, sort of alienating them. So, um, and thankfully not a lot of our clients commit any criminal acts, so we're, we're lucky in that regard. Um, so that, that, that's, that's the main three areas, is, is wills and probate, business law and then property law. Uh, thanks, Brad. Good overview. Just um, I know when I came on board myself... Um, just understanding all the different um, factions and businesses under the roof here at Mulcanco is, you know, it is quite intricate. There's a lot of business services and individual services available. So I think just importantly where legal fits in with the FS360 model, like it does actually touch on a lot of areas, whether it's the estate planning, asset protection, taxation, um, all the way around the business planning. Yeah, so it does fit into a lot of areas. And I think that's where it works well when particularly the – Division that I work in, accounting, like quite often you're having joint meetings with the legal guys, so because it does cross over a lot. We, um, I remember you know, before I was here, Chris and I, we had a lot of joint uh, mutual clients from sort of out home, etc. Um, and it was so much more difficult to service them when he was here, and you know I was in a different office. You'd have to arrange for a, an appointment uh, in advance, and then you'd have to attend, and then. Nowadays, you know, if he's got someone in an office and something pops up, he can call me or vice versa to say, "Hey, can you pop in now for ten minutes? We'll have a quick chat about it, and you can work through a bit of a, a bit of a plan there and then, rather than you know, sending someone off. Can you go and talk to your accountant and get some advice on this before we do this?" And you know, tracks it out for, and for those months and months. Can get you know uh, blurred a little bit yeah. sometimes that yeah, way. Chinese so whispers. yeah, no, look at yeah. that's been uh, our ability to be able to get things done in a timely fashion uh, when. To be honest, clients may not think you know, transfer of some land into their super funds the most fun thing they're going to do in a week, um, so they're not rushing down to you know, to talk to the other party, the other the other professional about getting it done. We've found that's probably one of the main things. You, it's it's fairly seamless in how we get that done, um, and but a lot of clients I think behind the scenes wouldn't realise you know the difficulty that most people have in probably coordinating those things um, that they have to coordinate a lot of that themselves. Whilst here, it just gets done internally. Yeah, you know, I think another benefit has been for our team members to actually learn what the other divisions do and actually get an understanding of, you know, what the legal guys have to do. Similar to you, Gav, with the marketing side of things. Like, it's been interesting just everyone getting a better understanding of that communication piece and how important it is with our clients, whereas in the past they just thought marketing was putting an ad in the paper or an ad on TV, where that whole communication piece for businesses is just so important now. <laughs> I suppose that's the, the main reason, as Brad said, that we all are all separate businesses sitting under the one roof, but we all share an office space. So physically you can get up and walk 10 metres and talk to another professional in another area and get a good understanding of what they're talking about and doing. So, no, so it's, it's – and it fits in with the FS360, which is what we're all about, which is, um, I suppose, the most important thing. And I think the exciting thing moving forward is how we're sort of rolling this out across the other locations. Like it's – one thing to have it here in Ballarat and it does work really well and I think now that we've got that concept that we can take to the other 
locations. And I think legals would be different because of the state-based laws, but there's a certain amount of commercial-type work, Brad. That yeah. So if you think you've, with your parliaments, with your governments, you know, we've just mentioning before, Gav, you've got state who are going to come out and direct a whole lot of things probably over the weekend or certainly off the back of what the federal government's going to say today around easing restrictions, etc. But laws are created in the exact same way. So property law is a state-based law. There's not a Australia-wide system for um, dealing with, with property, etc. Criminal law is the same. Uh, it's a Victorian Act uh, enacted by the Victorian Parliament under the Victorian Constitution. Uh, if you think about tax, if you think about corporations law, etc., they're federal laws. In the, in the Constitution, Commonwealth Government has the power to make laws around those things and that's why they're the same in every single state. So accounting, for instance, tax, uh, some of the financial planning type stuff, um, they're all able to be done across different states. Um, but, yeah, for lawyers, by and large, you need to be um, registered in the particular state in which you're practising. You can have multiple ones. Certainly people near borders do have multiple registrations. But, um, yeah, we haven't rolled out legal in the Sunshine Coast because we haven't found the right person with the specific qualifications up there. Um, but, yeah, I do think that um, having accounting, legal, financial planning, all the divisions in one location assists all of the divisions in each location. There's not one who benefits necessarily a whole lot more than the other. It's just that collaborative... Uh, the ability to have collaborative approaches to each solution um, that you'd otherwise be sending clients down the road to talk to someone else about um, that you can do all at once um, once you've got all those in-house. With the client at the middle of that, I suppose, is, is ultimately what the FS360 system's about here, is making it easy and uh, a good result for the client, you know to assist with financial security. So, and legal and law is certainly part of all that. Brad, how has um, the COVID-19 um, situation impacted from a legal standpoint? Um, property law, I would say, now starting to feel um, the impacts. Not as many people have been out shopping for properties. Not as many people have been at open houses, at auctions. Um, speaking to real estate agents and builders, they say, they're, they say that their client uh, interactions are way down. So... Um, you know, referrals and also um, new businesses way down. Uh, they, where normally they'd be doing 20, 30, 50 sort of, um, deals a month, you know, they can be down to less than 10. Um, so with that area, with, with all that area uh, on the on the go slow, uh, conveyancing is obviously just starting to feel the effect now. So, so maybe your, your guys in property and conveyancing yeah. are one of those ones that's going to have a deferred effect. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there was already work in yep. the pipeline yep. until now. Uh, that, that's 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 the case. We had uh, settlements still coming through March, April, for January, February for things that had happened pre this uh, pre lockdown. So that's yeah, we're just starting to sort of see the numbers and the lag of that. Uh, we are moving, of course, into the thirtieth of June period, so that uh, gives a different area of work for them. So transfers to superannuation funds, tidying up things for uh, for tax purposes to trusts and out of them. Th that all gets really really busy in May June anyway. So. Um, they'll, they'll certainly be busy with other things, but we are starting just to notice that lag effect. Having said that, uh, wills were very, very you – know, people getting new wills or people who hadn't updated wills, there was a, a real run on those. And this, it's still continuing. You know, People, I think, uh, very early on thought, you haven't done that, when there was a, um, probably a larger fear than still around now about, you know, am I going to die from all this? 
Um, it, we did, yeah, we had a lot of people who said, Jesus, this made me think we you know, need to get some wheels done. Maybe part of it was, like Chris said in an earlier episode, about people's got more time on their hands. If they yeah. are home from yep. work or they're working from home or they actually have been put off yep. um, work, they're actually thinking about some of their other affairs. You yep. know, how, how else can I get organised in this time? So maybe the wheels is part of that too. I think so. I think it is one of those things that you, I'll get around to one day, but all of a sudden you were getting around to some of those jobs. But by far the most uh, interrupted or changing area in all of this was, was leases, landlords and tenants um, and the, the government's early statement that uh, under, the, uh, under the lockdown no one would be evicted from their premises by a landlord during you know, that six-month period um, and how, what that was exactly going to mean. They come out and made this broad sweeping statement and said, then said we will release some details in the coming weeks. Um, they didn't. It took longer and longer and we were having you know, five or ten calls a day, especially early on I would have had 20, 30 calls a day from both landlords and tenants. You know, do it, can I enforce my lease because I haven't been paid? Um, do I have to pay rent at all? And the answer for the first few weeks was nobody knows. I mean, they'd come out with these statements and then had nothing to back them up. We're still getting that a lot of the time. A bit like um, JobKeeper. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so – and, and um, they've only more recently uh, announced the – Federal governments, uh, the National Cabinet came out and said these are the guidelines, but as I mentioned before, property is a state-based law, so it took another week or so for the Andrews government to come out and say how that was going to affect in Victoria. And since then, um, we've all been scrambling to sort of understand what those regulations are. They're not, they're not adopted law like it normally would be, so normally a piece of legislation might take two, three years of going through uh, various hearings in the houses and testing by... Um, by the, by the governing bodies and key, key industry groups around some of these things. But they've, as with the JobKeeper and everything else, they've been thrown out relatively quickly for obvious reasons. But they don't necessarily fit every model and there's, there's a lot of gaps. So um, Anthea, a solicitor in our, our business, has been keenly reading the, the, the regs around the landlord and, and uh, tenant um, obligations under, under the new regime. Um, and she's going to be in a little bit later to answer some specific queries around that because I think that's something, as I said before, it's probably the thing that's been most affected um, or, or most controversial uh, in the legal world in this. Um, and I think for a lot of our clients who are either landlords or tenants, um, they'll be interested to hear the, um, you know, an update on what that exactly means and what you need to do to, to access those provisions, I guess. Yeah, because I think the initial concept was around good faith, that the tenant and landlord would act in good faith. Now, yeah, it's great. For, yeah. If you're trying to interpret that <laughs> as, right. a, as a lawyer, and there's still a lot of that in there. You wait for Anthony to come in when, when she starts, you know, she won't be able to give a straight answer to a lot of questions yeah. because they've said, look, we really expect you to act in good faith. It's actually in the regs. We expect both parties to get together and act in good faith, which, yeah, it's a, it's a terrifically easy thing to write in agreements. I've been guilty of that before when I had no other answer to a problem. You know, they'll, they'll get together and act in good faith, but... Yeah, it's very hard. To, yeah, <laughs> it's very hard to find where that middle ground of good faith should fit. Um, so yeah, so leases. So is probably one of the main areas um, that we've been answering questions about, and even still, you know, very similar to your loan situation, uh, where people were deferring. There was talk early on that it'd just be a deferral of rent. So you know, if you were due to be paid, well, they'd look at turnover, and if you were down fifty percent, you only needed to continue to pay fifty percent. Um, but then they sort of started to say, well, hang on, well, it's going to put this massive burden. The very day you come out of um, this regime, this six-month regime was originally uh, mentioned as, does that mean I can instantly hit you with a breach notice to pay this, you know, whatever amount of outstanding and, 
you know, no one's going to have the money necessarily to do it. So um, very much like the deferral thing, is it making a noose around your own neck, just deferring all these payments to a later date? Sometimes you'll do that regardless to... You've got to kick the can down the road just to get there. But, um, yeah, Andy will be in, in a bit to talk about that um, because it's, uh, yeah, it's, a very, it's a very involved area and, of course, there's already so many uh, regulations and stipulations around retail leases and who can do what and so many grey areas that I don't think this is necessarily going to make it any easier. Brad, probably something that we're looking at with the accounting clients, a lot of the business and farming clients, is that opportunity, and it all links back to the FS360 model of getting everything in the right spot for later on, whether that's succession planning, estate planning. Um, probably a concern that has been around for a while is that we've got some pretty good um, concessions here in Victoria particularly, but then federally as well, you know, just with the general taxation of capital gains and so forth for business. You're talking about small business tax concessions, etc. Yeah, yep. and just the restructure ones as well. So yep. I think it's something that we're talking, or actually clients probably talking to us about a lot more, that they're sort of saying, well, you know, these concessions that you've been telling us about are there. Do you reckon they're going to be there later on? Because the government have got to find ways of raising more revenue. So, so many. There's so many reasons why it's an opportune time to look at restructuring. Um, number one, and before... Um, the virus, etc., came about. Those concessions were in place, and in Victoria, if, you, if you're talking about agricultural land and agricultural businesses, they've got even more concessions. So, so for instance, you could stamp duty concessions around intergenerational transfers, which stems over to you being able to transfer land from your own name or, or a family trust or a family company to another entity that you own to allow for relatively simple restructures. Um, so succession planning or even just a restructure, it doesn't have to be succession planning where you're passing anything on. Just if you've started off with a small business, you might have had some land and it's grown now, um, it's time to look at your structure, try to upgrade to you know what might be a next level type structure. Um, those You can get around stamp duty, if you can get around capital gains tax, it makes for a hell of a lot cheaper restructure than if you're operating a business in Melbourne that owns its own freehold and doesn't have access to those stamp duty Concessions, so you know that can make the difference. You know, yeah, if you so talk about a five million dollar farm. Yeah, you're talking about two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollars, perhaps of um, of stamp duty that you, if you were restructuring, you may you may be up for. And it's a difficult sell, obviously, to clients to suggest that hey, this will be better, but it's going to cost you four or five hundred thousand dollars in taxes um, to get it across the line. Um, the other reason, of course, at the moment, I think people are looking at their businesses and hearing so much in the wider economy about asset protection and things like that, about people who are becoming liable for their own... Sorry, for the debts of their business, so becoming personally liable for the debts of their business. Um, and depending on the structure, that's certainly a possibility, but uh, it's a great it's a great reason to look at your structure and, and consider whether or not there's a better structure out there, there's something that gives you that asset protection, you know, that, that, that free insurance, I guess, once you've restructured it, that your own home and you know your, your family's assets, as opposed to your business assets, are separate. Um, so, yeah, as a as a as a time to restructure, I don't think there's ever been a better one for those multiple multitude of reasons. Yeah, so I think it's yeah, it's it, it has been interesting that we have had a lot of clients talking to us about it. It might be something we raised 12, 18 months ago, and now they're actually coming back saying, "Look, remember that discussion we had? We think we should go ahead and do something now." So. It is interesting and we always like to try and tie these types of things in with the end of financial year if we can. It doesn't really matter. but Yeah, it's a, um, it's a good time for tax purposes, isn't yeah, it? You know, you're, not, you're, not, you're not preparing two sets of accounts for um, for two two years, uh, for one financial year with two sets of accounts. Um, but it's, it's certainly one that 
we here are even more able to really achieve a good outcome in a quick way for clients, even, you know, if there's anyone listening out there who isn't a client of ours, um, they, certainly, it's something that we, because we have everybody under one roof, can achieve something relatively quickly and relatively affordably uh, with some real expertise without, um, yeah, without... Uh, too much effort from their point of view. They come in and we can we can take care of all that. With accounting, legal, and especially even just within legal, we have multiple divisions included in that one conversation. Your business, you've got property, and you've got you know wills and estates all in that one in that one conversation. So, yeah, great time to be looking at restructuring. If your accountant brings up restructuring at the moment, uh, I'd certainly be seriously considering it because in twelve months' time, when we have to pay for all of these stimulus packages we've been talking about, they're going to start looking at fringe taxes and fringe concessions concessions that you know, may return them some additional revenues without too much, I guess, political backlash from small numbers of, you know, because they deal with small numbers of people. Um, but that's why I'd make it an opportune time now to get in before anything changes. Yeah, probably another discussion with clients we've been having is around their terms and conditions of how they actually trade with mm. their um, customers. And just, I suppose, moving forward, I guess there's that concern that you're dealing with someone, are they going to be able to pay? Mm. So, on, on yeah, look, I know we've um, probably with the legal guys who've there's been two or three clients in the last week that we've you know, had a chat to legal guys saying, look, you know, we need to look at their current terms and conditions, make sure they're compliant, and put in place, you know, whatever we can to make sure if they are selling goods that they have some type of security over those goods still. Like, is that um, yeah. something that two two parts of that? The, the first part is your terms and conditions. Um, like you mentioned. So the actual physical, if you're going to sell somebody a product or provide a service to somebody, you should have some form of a system where you quote them a price or otherwise they sign to say that they accept the price that you've told them verbally, you write that down, um, what you're going to do for them relatively precisely uh, and then a set of terms and conditions which you don't have to rewrite every time. You can print them up, they can be on a, a, a pre-printed pro forma book, whatever your system is currently, you can work in with those. But a set of terms and conditions that set out what happens if. What happens if they don't pay? What happens if what you deliver isn't exactly what they wanted? What happens if they refuse to pay because there was some minor variation to what you did? You know, we've all, if you've been in business, you've always had the difficult client who wants to argue about everything. But a well a well drafted and included ter- set of terms and conditions will take care of probably 80% of those hassles. Uh, the second problem, of course, um, and you need it in your terms and conditions to take this, is security for payment. So depending on what you're doing, if you're selling goods to somebody, they've taken receipt of those goods and then they go into bankruptcy before you're paid, if you're a 30-day invoice or whatever it might be, it's great to say we all want to do cash up front for you know, cash on delivery, but not, you know, not business doesn't run like that always. If that's the case, I think a lot of times it's um, being able to secure your payment, and that can be done through various means, uh, the PPSA, uh, other retention of title type things, but they've mostly been replaced by the PPSA, Personal Property Security Act. Um, those are charging interest, things like that. They're all means that you need it in your terms and conditions to really be able to utilise those benefits. Um, so if you do, if you're involved in business, you've got any type of service or goods that you're offering, you need to have a set of terms and conditions. Um, you know, it's not an expensive thing to, to, to undertake at the outset and it's not something that you're going to continually have to, 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 to change or update. Once you've got them, make sure you use them and they can give you a world of benefit once, you're, once you, you get that trouble client, either, either won't pay or, or you've got other issues with them.
So with the PPSA, the what's that stand for? Personal Pers- Property Security Act. Yeah. yeah. So that essentially um, provides like security on title, almost, isn't it? Yeah, to a good. So, yeah, so, 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 so like a like a bank takes out a mortgage over your house. You know, if you go to sell that house in the future, they can wave that mortgage in your face and say, "Look, you have to pay this back before we let you sell." And you know, as part of that, if you sold your house for four hundred thousand dollars and you're owing two hundred, they're going to take their two hundred and give you the two hundred. The same thing happens with whatever good you've sold. So if you've sold somebody um, a whole lot of material, let's say a whole lot of uh, topsoil, Gav. Um, in that case, you could register an interest over their entity saying that you've supplied them with goods and that they owe you $20,000 for those goods. If they were to go bust, you'd have the ability perhaps to either um, go back and get those goods and take them back, which is you know not as good as payment necessarily in full, but it's better than, um, than losing the goods and the money. Uh, or alternatively, if, that, if it's been sold and that money can be easily traced into a bank account, you could take that in priority to other creditors, etc., um, so yeah, it's like a mortgage over a, a, a good or a, you know a service. You know, and there's fixed and floating ones where if you do a lot of work with a business, um, that you can have an all monies security interest over that company that puts you ahead of the line if they do go in uh, into bankruptcy or any sort of type of receivership situation. Um, puts you ahead of the you know, the unsecured creditors who may be getting two cents in the dollar. You stand stand a chance to get you know. So we talk in the PPSAs mainly for larger amounts of money. Do you think, Brad, or do No, you... I wouldn't necessarily. Most clients I talk to them about, it's more a cost-benefit type scenario. You know, everyone's got a figure in their mind that, look, I can, I can write off that much, but I can't afford to write off that much, you know. And for BHP, that's going to be very different than, um, than a small business who might turn over two or 300, two, two or 300 grand a year. Um, so it's really what you can afford to lose, Gav, as to how much of this administration cost you, you're willing to go to um, to secure your payments now. That's different for every business. I was talking to a business that deals in uh, the sale of tyres and they said, look, for anything other than under two grand, like we probably wouldn't bother doing it for a set of car tyres, but, you know, for a set of truck tyres at whatever that comes to, we would. Um, And the process is relatively simple, you know, we can supply training and all those things and not to get bogged down in that, we could do a whole other one around security, et cetera. But, yeah, just for the people out there, um, if you don't have those, don't leave it until... You are owed money and it's too late. You need to get on the front foot and have these terms and conditions in place before you get the bad client um, because it's too late after that time. Yeah, so I think we could almost have a separate episode on the PPSA because it is a very in-depth and but I guess the main point is to probably terms and conditions, have them up to date and have the option to be able to yep. register your interest via yep. the PPSA system. We'll call the business law team here. We all know about that part of it. We can tell you, we can walk you through what the benefits might be, etc. for your specific business. And Gav, we have got a flyer on it, so we might actually attach that to the show notes. Sure. Yeah, just so yep, people can get access to it. After today's episode, uh, go always, as always goes up onto the social media accounts, um, up onto the molk.com.au website, a link off the homepage there. So yeah, we might accompany the flyer right next to today's podcast. So um, anyone wanting that information, it'll be readily available. So thanks for coming in, Anthea. Uh, we've been talking just briefly around uh, landlords and tenants, the obligations uh, with this new COVID-19 strategy that the uh, first the federal government put in place in the state. Uh, do you want to give us just a brief rundown, really, I guess, on um, how it sort of came about at a national level and then obviously how it's been adopted at a state level and then we'll get into some specific examples sort of around that? Yeah, sure. So the National Cabinet released uh, basically a code of conduct um, which had some general principles around 
how landlords and tenants were going to negotiate through these times and following that each state has enacted enabling legislation and being mostly a state issue, um, leasing legislation and following that um, it's allowed the Small Business Commissioner to release some regulations with more specifics around how uh, what landlords and tenants' uh, rights and obligations during this time. So it's a good 320 pages, the, uh, the new release, and you've obviously pulled over those over the last week. And, uh, obviously very excited the day they came out. Is there a lot of difference between what the federal government um, announced and what the states included? Uh, there are a couple of, uh, not differences, but just uh, fine-tuning. Um, initially, the, the national code was quite broad... Um, and it wasn't really clear how that was going to work in practice. So the state legislation and regulations really go into the finer details of how practically the code can be, be implemented. So does it, if you're, a, uh, if you're a tenant, do you automatically get the benefit <laughs> of this or is there certain requirements, uh, certain turnover requirements, etc., that bring this about, uh, that make enable this legislation for your benefit? Yeah, there are a lot of requirements which... Um, is really a relief for landlords, I think, because initially the national code indicated that the tenants were going to have pretty broad rights and I know that once that code was released, um, a lot of tenants just stopped paying rent. Um, But that's actually not necessarily the case. Um, The eligibility requirements are that You have to be uh, a small to medium enterprise and you have to qualify for and participate in the JobKeeper scheme. So uh, the thresholds for the JobKeeper scheme apply here. So if you're a landlord and you've got a tenant and they're unable to meet those two requirements, there should be no impediment to them continuing to meet their rent obligations? Uh, No, there's no legal requirement to negotiate on rent. Um, It was in the National Code, they did mention that non-eligible leases, parties would still be expected to comply with the spirit of the code, um, which is basically just sharing the burden. But there's actually no legal obligation if uh, it's not an eligible lease. That's the good faith uh, conundrum we were talking about earlier, Chris, that there's certainly still sort of a lot of uncertainty around certain parts of the leasing community, whether or not they apply or not. So if there's a tenant, and let's say they are um, affected in that particular way, they are receiving the JobKeeper um, program from the government, what steps do they take uh, and or if you're on the other side of the fence and you're a landlord, what can you be expecting from your tenant in those particular cases? So uh, the good news for landlords is that the tenant has to take the first step. So the tenant has to make a written request to the landlord for rent relief and that request has to contain a statement by the tenant that it's an eligible lease and is not excluded um, under the corporate group provisions of the Corporations Act. And they also have to provide evidence that the tenant is a small to medium enterprise and qualifies and participates in the JobKeeper scheme. So that's step one. Um, Following receiving one of those requests, a landlord has 14 days uh, to make an offer for rent relief. Following that, the parties have to negotiate, assuming that the tenant doesn't accept that offer straight away. Um, and if there's no agreement, then you can apply for mediation with the Small Business Commission and failing that VCAT or court. So, be, so beyond the um, 
obligation of the landlord to act in good faith. Is there any information, once the tenant's provided their eligibility for the scheme, is there any information on what type of rent would be fair that's been provided, any guidance that landlords may take that this would be a fair rent going forward? Yeah, so there are, the regulations have listed a lot of factors that have to be taken into account, but there's certainly no black-white rule on what um, is appropriate. Um, the good news for landlords is that um, the rent relief offer doesn't need to be directly related to a reduction in the tenant's turnover. So, for example, if the tenant has a 50% decrease in turnover, that doesn't equate to an immediate 50% uh, reduction in rent. Um, so, based other, other factors? What other factors? Yeah, so um, there are plenty of factors. Basically, they've said... Um, what is reasonable in all of the circumstances of the lease, um, which includes the tenant's ability to trade, um, whether the landlord has been able to obtain relief from out certain outgoings or um, their repayment obligations to their bank. Um, and, yeah, the, there's a quite a long list of um, factors to be taken into account, but um, it's kind of unclear... It's probably going to be a case-by-case -case basis, so it's just, not really Just thinking on that, and, and Anthony and I haven't had, a, haven't had a chance to have a conversation around the scheme um, yet, obviously with uh, most of us all working from home at the moment, but it's probably an opportunity for landlords to either catch up with their solicitors or accountants to go over the information that they've received from the tenants, you know, to probably to interpret what the financial impact would be as opposed to, you know, like you said, that's not just turnover. If you're taking into account a lot of those other um, measures, what the actual end of the uh, bottom line financial impact's been? Yeah, definitely. So the landlord does have a right to request certain information, financial information about the tenant to allow them to make an assessment on what a reasonable offer is. So um, trading figures are probably the number one. We don't have any clear indication of what information a landlord's entitled to request, but presumably um, more substantial financial information like profit and loss statement would be relevant as well. And that's, yeah, t the type of thing that... Receiving the JobKeeper, if they're... We know they're receiving those, but you would presume that the the JobKeeper income, if you want to call it that, or um, if, they're, if they're receiving that, that's really got to count as towards income. Um, yeah, and... You know. and the thing is with these eligible leases, all of these tenants are definitely receiving mm. JobKeeper income. So, yeah, that's definitely a factor to be taken so into account. So if they've account. lost, you know, depending on the size of the business, if they've lost 30% of turnover to become eligible for the JobKeeper, um, that may almost make up for a lot of um, the downtown in turnover um, that they otherwise received, depending on what their wage levels, et cetera, were. Yeah, mm. depending on how big a portion of their costs is. Mm. And you sort of think that's where this good faith bit might have to come into it because there'll be businesses sort of, yeah, like cafes, pubs, those types of things that have really been whacked by the, the uh, coronavirus. But then there'll be businesses that have achieved or complied to get JobKeeper, but it might only be that month or two where they've really seen that reduction in income that's allowed them to get the JobKeeper, which then flows on to this, what you're talking about, Anthea. Yeah, and I, I think that a really relevant factor here is that these um, rent reductions or deferrals or um, otherwise 
have to run from 20, the 29th of March 2020 to the 29th of September 2020. So, so the full six-month period, yeah, the, yep. the, the regime runs for, even if, like Chris said, you might only have been affected for a month or two of that. Yeah, absolutely, and especially at this time where we don't know how significantly businesses will be affected in the future. Is it sort of hope that the tenant and landlord will get together and work it out? Is it, and then the legislation is just sort of that fallback position? Is that what they're hoping? Or do you sort of see that most tenant-landlord relationships will go to the law and apply it directly? Yeah, they've said from the start that they're hoping that um, that we'll kind of all just get together and work it out between ourselves. And I think that this is probably more of a backup option for... I mean, I presume that most landlords and tenants have probably reached an agreement if they're going to prior to this legislation coming out because um, it's taken a month for this to come out. Yeah, that's right. Because I think early on, I think, you know, those businesses that were severely affected, I think they got on the front foot pretty quickly, didn't they, and had a chat to their landlord? uh, Yeah, the tenants, um, yeah, and landlords were ringing up the tenants because they had a similar level of uncertainty. Um, It's interesting, um, Anthea, of legal letters, as uh, you know, letters from other solicitors to landlords or tenants of ours, we've had very few. I would say there's it's certainly been a proactive approach, and whether that's been the delay in getting the legislation out's forced people to do that, or um, or alternatively, most landlords and tenants have reasonable relationships in a commercial sense. Um, we haven't had a lot of litigation. We've had a hell of a lot of queries from landlords and from tenants, but we haven't had a lot of um, we haven't had a lot of issues with other solicitors contacting us and saying, you know, we demand A, B, C, D, have we? No, no. Um, And I think that's because it was so unclear. It was difficult to give legal advice before the law was enacted. Um, Another thing to mention is it's not actually clear, based on the regulations and the legislation at this point, whether agreements entered into prior to the release of these regulations are affected by the regulations um, so it doesn't actually say whether – it does give you the option to basically contract out of these provisions. So if you come to an agreement that's not consistent with these provisions, that's fine. Um, and given the government's encouragement to do deals ahead of time, we think it's probably unlikely that um, there's going to be issues with agreements that have already been agreed. I suppose one thing that might help now is that those dates have been set. So right up until 29th of September – because I think some, some people had come to their own agreement and said, yep, how long is that going to last for? Not sure. Let's say three months, just out the top of our heads. But now we've got, actually got a date that it can run to. So I think that's been good. Yeah, having said that, I still think it's important if they have come to some agreement to get in contact with us just about documenting it because, um, like all things, there's going to be a lot of animosity if trading goes berserk soon after you do a deal with the tenant and, um, and you know, you've, you've agreed to give them a very low rate sort of for the next six months. Um you're a tenant you'd want to lock that in but certainly on the reverse of it you know if, if there's been any um, agreements you probably want to document them appropriately because the simple emails that I've seen going back and forth yeah you know just pay me half next month and we'll sort it out later type things that I have seen a fair few of it going around who knows does that mean it's a waiver for half the month is it a deferral for half the month is it you know is it um, and importantly, Catherine touched on that last week from a super self-managed super fund point of view. If the property or the landlord is a super fund, really important to get that paperwork in order. Yeah, that's right. The auditors will be looking for that documentation and I think, as Brad was saying, like with all this type of thing, 
just to be able to fall back on those legal agreements that have been put in place. So would you be varying leases or would these be separate agreements? Depends. Depends on the circumstances, Antia. Um, the regulations have actually said that just normal – an agreement would be sufficient to vary the lease for the purposes of this. Yeah. Yep. We'd normally do it by a deed of variation but in these circumstances it's just said an agreement is acceptable. So assuming just something in writing yep. doesn't have to – there's no formal requirements. Does it allow other breaches? It's purely relating to rent. So, for instance, you know, non-permitted uses or anything like that? Yeah, so rent, obviously the main one, but also um, reduced trading hours or closures would normally be a breach under a standard commercial lease. But uh, this legislation, again, for eligible leases, um, prohibits termination for that reason. If your rent's deferred, how's that going to work? Like, does it all of a sudden become due and payable on the end of September date? No, so there are pretty strict requirements in relation to deferrals. Um, number one being that a maximum of 50% of rent relief provided can be deferral. So the other 50% has to be a waiver. Um, and a landlord may not request payment of part of the deferred rent until the earlier of uh, the 29th of September, so the um, expiry of that relevant period, um, and the expiry of the term of the lease. So the effect is that the tenant will have um, the greater of 24 months or the balance of the term of the lease to pay the deferred rent. So a 10-year lease, hypothetically, you know, if you had eight years left, they'd be breaking it down and paying it over that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, correct. So and whatever the deferral amount was divided by eight years. Sort of. Yeah, so it can potentially be a, a very long time to pay that off. Um, if, a, if a term of a lease has less than 24 months left on it, um, they, the tenant must be offered an extension of the term to permit repayment of the well, deferred rent So it's actually an extension of, rather months. than just an extension of payment, like a payment term, Correct. it's actually the lease itself. Yep, and it has to be on the exact same terms. That's got, yeah, that's got some long-lasting long effects. Yeah. Um, the, strategically for people who are hoping to get their property back and develop it or put someone else in there or whatever it might be. Yeah, it certainly um, makes rent deferral much less attractive than I think we initially thought. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a really long t- time to pay it back and... I mean, there's going to be some administration of calculating that, keeping track of it. It's maybe not the solution that I think a lot of landlords were hoping it would be. Yeah, no, it's very interesting, isn't it? Very complex area. It's a bit like, sort of sounds a bit like JobKeeper in that, you know, it sort of initially came out with a, with a sweeping statement of we're going to help and do this. But when you see the detail of it, there's a lot of detail in there, isn't there? What about outgoings, Anthony? Obviously, in addition to rent, commercial leases, there's outgoings payable by the tenant? Yeah, so there's an obligation on the landlord to pass on any concessions that they are eligible for to the tenant. Um, in this, that could potentially include land tax um, for non-retail leases and also council rates, basically anything that the landlord is able to get their hands on discount-wise, they must pass it on to the tenant. Um it's difficult to see how that works for a gross lease um, for someone who's paying rent inclusive of, of all outgoings, how that works. Presumably it has to be taken into account um, for the, for the rent, in the rent relief, um, which is pretty difficult at this stage. Um, and also if the tenant is unable to operate their business at all, um, then the landlords must consider waiving recovery of any outgoing or expense payable. 
So pay them themselves effectively to keep yeah, it running. Yeah, and it's not clear what not being able to operate really means um, in terms of mandatory closures for um, businesses like gyms or voluntary closures for um, for uh, hospitality businesses which are still able to operate takeaway. Um, and also just the language being the landlords must consider waiving. Mm. Um, it's really... Not very helpful. It's not yeah. very helpful. If... if You'd, you'd probably assume that um, most landlords would want to work with their tenant because I assume there's not a heap of potential tenants lining up to moving to the property. So that's sort of an important consideration. It's a strategic point, isn't it? Yeah. What yeah. about uh, if, 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 if these are overdue, am I able to call on any security bond uh, bank guarantee that I might hold? No. So provided that um, the lease is obviously an eligible lease, as we've discussed, and the tenant is complying with the regulations and the lease conditions that have been varied in accordance with these regulations, so they're paying the reduced rent on time, etc. Landlords not committed to call on security deposits or bank guarantees or charge interest or call on indemnities in any way. And probably my last um, query is in the event that uh, either, uh, either a further term or even uh, an annual rent increase comes about during the six-month period... Has there been any uh, any discussion around those? Yeah, so rental increases are effectively just paused um, for the duration of the relevant period, which, as we discussed, is to the 29th of September. So, um, yeah, uh, it's kind of unclear at the moment whether retrospectively that increase will be payable, but I suspect not. So Math- Mathematically, it'll probably have to purely, you know, in working out CPIs, et cetera, it's going to be based on, you know, those those... The base costs, uh, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out too. So that yeah. that takes into account if the lease, you know, um, if it was due for an increase on the first of August, you're saying that takes into that into account that it can't increase. In this Correct. Yeah. Yep. That that increase is paused. Great, Anthea. I think um, getting the experts in, Chris, has really helped this podcast out. I it's think it's very interesting. Yeah, very I think interesting. Yeah. It, illustrates the point of having the professionals in the right areas um, to make sure that you're protected, I suppose. So anyone out there with any queries for uh, um, uh, legal or property, give Brad or Anthea a call. It's been a really good episode today, guys. We're going to uh, wrap up with a, our key takeaways for today's episode. We always do three key takeaways and we're going to finish off the episode with our recession strategy for the week. Um, but we're going to go to key takeaways with Chris. Yeah, Gav, thanks for that. Yeah, look, uh, thanks to Brad and Anthea. That's been fantastic uh, just learning, you know, and understanding where, you know, a lot of those legal matters and the COVID-19 issues and um, what you need to be looking for. So I think the key takeaways, I just want to probably highlight the JobKeeper um, process just to make sure that so an, so an accounting thing. You, the key takeaway of all the time we've spent here today <laughs> is an accounting thing. Well, I just wanted to make sure that people are aware <laughs> that the money is hitting bank accounts. And How much am I getting paid for this, Gav? Seriously, <laughs> this has been a waste of my time. I thought we could put number two could be a marketing one. Yeah, that's right. But anyhow, look, yeah, look, it's no laughing matter that this job keeps no, system. No, no, it's very serious. And um, just making sure that if you are waiting for the money and you've gone through the process, it shouldn't be too far away, but just check your bank account. And if you haven't registered yet because you haven't qualified, it doesn't mean that you can't register, okay? So it's a month-by-month month In the months check, to come, you can still check register. On turn, yep, yep, that's right. So you if you've prove, missed out... You can prove your, your, your turnover reduction, etc. Yep. yep. So I thought that was a very important one. Now we'll get on to the really important ones. And I thought Anthea was excellent with her 
summary for the landlords and tenants. So I think that's um, some great advice there. And I think the landlords and tenants has created a lot of angst out in the community because, you know, uh, and a few people I know, you know, they've either landlords or their tenants themselves. So, you know, they've been very worried about that side of it. So, yeah, you know, Anthea's work today's um, and, and thoughts on that have been very valuable. Yeah, because you've got to put yourself in the shoes of both. Like the landlord potentially got debt against the property, dealing with the bank. Yep, the bank might have given him given them a bit of leeway. But then the tenant, like obviously with their businesses either being shut down uh, due to government uh, requirements or, you know, trading just halted. So, look, it's a very important area and I know that good faith principle sounds good. Fluffy. But it is a bit fluffy, isn't it? So I think what Anthony has gone through today has been excellent. One person's good faith is a little bit different than the next person's, Brad, mm. sometimes. Well That's said. It. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I think... Number three, T's and C's. Did you learn what that was today, Gav? Terms and conditions. Let's Terms get all that stuff on your, on your quotes, on your invoices, that sort of thing, um, yep. so that you can make sure that you're covered from a legal standpoint. Yep, excellent opportunity to review those terms and conditions and particularly uh, consider the PPSA, Personal Property Securities Act, and see where that may fit in or at least have the option to include those as part of your terms and conditions. So I think as part of... Uh, the economy that we're uh, entering and how that's going to change and the pressure that's going to be on certain businesses. You just want to be very careful with who you're dealing with and I guess have a bit of a structure around those dealings and I think that begins with your terms and conditions. Great takeaways. Chris, thank you for that. Yeah, been a lot lot covered in today's episode. I know, um, you know, if, if you're listening and you're from a legal background or an accounting background, all this makes sense. If it doesn't, uh, the idea is to, to call in. Uh, give us a call, make an appointment, and um, that's the idea that our professionals here can help you out with it. Um, we're going to have go on to our recession strategy tip of the week, and this one's a uh, it's a very interesting one. I think since uh, the COVID uh, nineteen lockdown, we said before a lot of people have bothered to get out there and find uh, find the their to do list of things that they hadn't got around to, and Wills was certainly one of those. Um, but uh, one of the better recession busting tips I think I've heard more recently, Gav. Uh, relates to just do-it-yourself things, people getting things done around the house or otherwise, you know, making things at home, tidying things up themselves. Um, you and I, obviously, both ute drivers, Gav, you know, yes. we, we were silly enough ourselves, of course, to go out and buy a ready-made ute, but uh, got it on good authority, somebody that we both know, Gav, um, has taken upon themselves to, uh, you know, Ford, Volkswagen, Mercedes, massive companies, obviously big big budgets for uh, for... Developing products, etc. Where is this going? Uh, I've heard on uh, good authority that uh, someone you and I know quite well, Gav, has decided that uh, rather than buy something that's uh, already uh, already ready to go, they've decided they'd make their own ute. Really? Yes. It's homemade ute. A homemade. Homer Simpson style. Well, very Designed similar to, to that, ute. because utes obviously wouldn't be up to uh, wouldn't be up to standard. There's someone I know who's uh, he's purchased a uh, brand new wagon. And then he's cut the back off it and put a tray rather than uh, rather than uh, accept the offerings from a whole lot of, uh, of manufacturers out there already ready to go, which I thought was just an astounding sort of money-saving uh, idea. Well, you, um, everyone's got to be frugal in these times, Brad. Well, you do. The fact that, you know, the, you know, the vehicle itself may not have been probably as cheap as some of the utes and then they've gone and just hacked into it with a hacksaw it did seem a bit strange. But have you heard of such a thing sort of happening, Chris? Is that... uh, it does seem a bit... Uh... Like quite odd, actually. Does it? Yeah. Um, but look, I can understand that every now and then someone needs a real ute. 
Well, there's these utes that are getting around and blokes driving these utes that Which is think they're... Mine and Brad's. Yeah, yeah. there's, you know, there's people, people <laughs> working shiny. in offices. They're a little bit are, shiny. You know, legal type people, marketing type people drive around these utes. I'm not sure what they're actually trying to prove, but Does, I don't know. The maybe fact, the fact that it's got to be a real ute, you've got to find it, uh, something that isn't a ute and then cut it apart to create a well, ute. That's what makes nothing, it a real ute. Nothing like getting an angle grinder out and cutting something in half with an angle grinder. Anyway, you, anyway. Yeah, like you blokes carry an angle grinder in your ute. I'm not sure what an angle grinder is. No, it's been a long time since <laughs> I've seen an angle grinder. I've got a friend who's got one. Yeah. But, uh, actually, oh, someone oh. ran into the Gav's ute. Yeah, I do. I, that was uh, amidst the uh, the very first uh, uh, discussion we had around the yeah. COVID. It was just before the lockdown came into effect. Yeah. And, and look, uh, I haven't been in a in a uh, hurry to fix it because it's got a nice big crack in it and yeah. it's got some tape holding it together. Yeah, I look tough. Yeah, you. Is that actually? Right? I, yeah. I was going to say that now. Like everyone, like Brad's ute's always clean. It's like it doesn't go off. Off-road or anything like that. So a PPSA. Or I'm not allowed to go anywhere at the moment. I can only drive to the office and home. We're yeah, true, true, yeah. but, you know. Anyway, anyway, I thought that was a, a an interesting uh, recession-busting tip just to make your own ute, Gav. Yeah. Um, Save some money. Oh, that'd be, yeah, like it's not, not specifically a legal one, but um, it was something I noticed the other day and I thought, gee, that's, that's interesting, you know. Yeah, so look, even though making your own ute would fit into probably the top 100, we're sort of up to number five, I think, Gav. We are, yep. yep. Tip, so, tip number five this so, week. So, and you're writing a book on these, Gav, is that right? Like each each tip's going to have a chapter? Yep. Yep, right. Uh, so, ebook. Ebook, right. Yep. So, that out through the socials in the so, weeks to come. Yeah, that, that should be good. So, tip one was getting your finances in order. That's when uh, Neil from our lending division gave us a really good summary of um, all was, the things that you need to be doing. That was tip number one. That was tip number one. Yep. yep. That's good. And good part of that one. was making sure you've got enough working capital for those businesses out there. Yep. Yep. Ensuring they're talking Excellent. to their bank. Uh, tip two was Gav, investing in client relationships. Very that, important. That is good. Running around with uh, trying to get new customers in this time, it could be difficult. Yep. So the idea is to let's look after our current customers and let's talk to them more and let's liaise with them more and we can do some more business with our current customer yep. list. And particularly using those social media channels too, which are relatively inexpensive compared to the older style media. So that was good. Tip three was getting fit and that was on a business and personal slash physical level as well, just getting prepared for the challenges ahead. So that was a good one. Number four last week with Catherine was in relation to superannuation and just making our super, making sure our superannuation is in order. Even Catherine's been on before me. Yeah. No, you're the first, Brad. This yeah. is the first episode. Look, this is the first real one. <laughs> so we talked about that and particularly um, with the insurances, life and TPD, which can be held in superannuation, just making sure that the levels are... Relevant to your circumstances, I think Thane in an oh, – don't mention – even Turles has been here. More previous yeah. episodes. Now, I did have a really good one for this week, but I knew that how Brad would take it if I brought up the one about cutting the ute and making a ute. So we've dropped that back a few more, even though Brad's brought it up. But I think we need to really focus on getting our legal matters in order. Now, legal matters can – include a variety of things which we've talked about today. Um, but I think particularly when we link it back to FS360, around asset protection, around estate planning, um, even tax planning, because I guess the type of structure that you do operate your business in or hold your assets in will determine, um, you know, a lot of things. So it's important to have all that under control and business plans. So whether it's buy-sell agreements, which we didn't really talk about, but that's probably a separate episode as well. So... 
Look, there are a lot of legal matters that businesses and individuals need to make sure that they've ticked off. And I think the FS360 is a great way of making sure you've covered off on those areas. And, yeah, I think uh, Brad and Anthony have sort of touched on a lot of immediate issues relating, uh, relating to the coronavirus. So I think they're probably priority, but those other matters are very important. I think it just uh, illustrates um, the idea of having a whole lot of professionals under the one roof just really makes it a bit simpler for the client. I suppose that's the – ultimately some of this stuff, if you're a client out there and you're not understanding some of what's being said, the idea is to have a chat to one of the professionals. Ch- ch- chat to your advisors because they're going to know what things you probably need even if you don't know where to start. So that's that would be the takeaway. Thanks to Brad for t- and Chris um, and Anthea today for uh, today's episode, episode six of the FS360 podcast. Um, stay well, everybody, and um, see you next episode. Thanks, Gav. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Anthea.